This morning's reading comes from Matthew, and it's the entire chapter 18. If you're reading along, um, you'll see the chapter headings or the uh, headings of the various sections. But if you're just listening, there are, it might just be helpful if I share that uh, those headings, the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, causing to stumble, parable of the wandering sheep, dealing with sin in the church, and the parable of the unmerciful servant. And I think you'll see as Anthea and I read how these um, tie together. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. See that what you do... I'll start that again, my apologies. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault, just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they refuse to listen still, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or tax collector. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, 
Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said, I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Amen. Thank you, Anthea and Michael. Uh, I'm sure for everyone here, you can easily think of a time when someone has wronged you and it was never resolved. They, they didn't apologize, they weren't punished. Perhaps other people didn't even acknowledge the wrong that was done to you. And as, as you think back to that situation, what would your perfect outcome be? What would be the, the perfect outcome you can imagine? I think if, if I'm being deeply honest, there are probably three words beginning with V that, that sum up what I would want in those situations, my, my instinctive desires. So firstly, vindication. I want, I want everyone to see that I was right and the other person was in the wrong. Victory. I want to win. I want the, the person or the people who wronged me to know that I beat them. And thirdly, vengeance. I want them to, to feel the pain that they made me feel. Uh, maybe that just says something about me, but, but I'm sure that those are things that deep down you desire as well. You, you wouldn't openly say it, but, but deep down those desires are there. So when Jesus tells us to forgive people who sin against us, we, we wonder, don't we, does Jesus get it? Does Jesus get the pain of being sinned against like I have? Does he think that we should just be doormats? 
not fighting back, allowing people to take advantage of us again and again and again. Is that what Jesus is saying here? Well, whether you're a follower of Jesus or or just here checking out church this morning, um, maybe there's someone who you're struggling to forgive or someone who you refuse to forgive because of what they did or, or what they're still doing. Jesus' instructions about forgiveness here are radical, and they're grounded in a radical attitude of heart, which is one of deep humility. Uh, We'll see that chapter 18 begins with Jesus' disciples asking him, who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who is most significant? Who is most valuable? And it's safe to assume, I think, that they all want it to be them. Um, So what Jesus says next, it, it turns their perception of greatness on its head, He tells them the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the one who converts the most people, the one who gives the most money. No, it's the one who becomes like this child, the one who takes the lowly position of a child. It's a a very appropriate thing to think through on on a day where we've baptized little Everett. See, at that time, children were nobodies. There was was no mass marketing industry that was aimed at kids. No one's Facebook feed got filled up with photos of kids in costumes during book week. Children had no status. They didn't count. And so Jesus is saying here, true greatness in the kingdom of heaven is marked by a humility that is blind to worldly status. See, we naturally rank ourselves against each other a bit, don't we? It's human nature. We're subconsciously comparing ourselves with each other based on how attractive we are, how much money we earn, how popular we are, how we're performing in all sorts of areas of life. Kingdom humility is to deny that there's anything about me that makes me greater than anyone else. It's different to having low self-esteem. See, Jesus embodies this humility himself. In a couple of chapters' time, we'll we'll hear him tell his disciples that he, the Son of Man, did not come to be served, but to serve. This humility, it it shapes how we treat others as well. Verse 5, we'll welcome children in Jesus' name for Jesus' sake. We'll love people regardless of whether they're a somebody or a nobody, because... In God's family, nobody is a nobody. So I wonder, which which one best describes you? The humble child or the the disciple clamoring for greatness? Do you welcome people regardless of their status? Are you more likely to to welcome the newcomer at church or or are you more likely to to ignore them and and go and chat to the, the group of people that you prefer to talk to? Do you take the effort to talk to people who aren't your age or who have different interests to you or who are just a bit more difficult to talk to? I don't mean just at church on a Sunday, but at school, at work, in all other areas of life. And do you serve? Setting up chairs before everyone gets to church, patiently teaching our children from the Bible. Are those the sorts of things that you do with a glad servant heart or or do you find it a bit demeaning? Not for me. Someone else can do that. 
Jesus explains how this attitude of kingdom humility will shape how we deal with the, the sad but the ever-present reality of sin in the church. Uh, firstly, verses 6 to 14, he shows us that we won't want to cause anyone to stumble in their faith. Jesus has a deep love and concern for children. We, we see that in verse 5. It was one of the verses that we focused on in our children's leaders training the other day. And when Jesus talks about these little ones in verse 6, I take it that he means not just literal children, but, but everyone who takes this humble position in God's kingdom. Have a look in verses 12 to 14 at, at the love that God has for these little ones who trust in him. He's not willing for any of them to perish. God is like the shepherd who goes after the one lost sheep because he cares so much about that sheep. And the warning that we read there in verse six reflects the value of the believer in Jesus' eyes. Better to be drowned in the ocean, Jesus says, than to cause one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, to lead them down a path that's destructive to their faith. This is a very serious warning. So how might I cause someone to stumble in this way? What do I need to be avoiding in all of this? Well, it's most likely to happen when there's a power imbalance, when you're in a, a more powerful position than someone else. Maybe you're, you're older than them, maybe you're, you're better connected at church, maybe you're in a position of leadership over them. What might it look like? Well, abuse of any nature, teaching them things that go against the truth of God's word, undermining their confidence in the gospel message or in the church, exposing them to temptations that lead them down bad paths. Or maybe it's, it's sin in your own life that sets them a bad example to follow, that encourages them into sin. Or maybe it's by doing the opposite of verse five, shunning them, making them feel unwelcome, making them feel like church isn't a place for them. So is there anything that you're willfully doing that could be destructive to someone's faith? It's an important question to think through. In verse 10, Jesus says, don't despise these little ones. What could be more unloving than, than being the cause of someone's spiritual stumbling? Heaven and hell are on the line here. There's too much at stake. Just a, a quick side note as well on verse 10. Um, it might be talking about guardian angels, what it, what it says about angels in heaven, although it's the only place in the Bible that we read anything like that. So it's more likely saying that, that these little ones will one day see God in heaven face to face. That's how special they are. Don't despise them now. So be careful not to allow anyone to stumble. And that includes ourselves as well. Jesus says, cut off your hand if it causes you to sin. Gouge out your eye. Better to be maimed on earth than to go to hell. Uh, the point he's making here is deal ruthlessly with sin and temptation in your life. Cut it off as close to the root as you can. Don't be responsible for, for someone stumbling in their faith, whether that's you or whether that's someone else. In humility, value the spiritual health of others, knowing how precious they are in Jesus' eyes. 
So we want to do everything we can to, to stop sin from happening. But what about when sin has happened or is happening? Uh, well, in verses 15 to 20, Jesus outlines some steps for dealing appropriately with it. And notice here that the goal of all of this is restoration, a humble concern for the person who has sinned, not a vengeful desire to punish them. And it's worth, it's worth pausing and reflecting on that, I think, because a proud person who is concerned with their own status wants to win. When there's conflict that's going on, they want to win. But the goal here isn't winning. The goal here is winning the person over, restoring the relationship. Verse 15, if your brother or sister sins, point out their faults one to one. Now, brother or sister here means another Christian. So this is, this is talking first and foremost about a church context. It's not clear whether Jesus means specifically any sin or, or particularly sin that's directed at me. But, but if we read this passage alongside 1 Corinthians chapter 5, which is quite a, a similar passage, and if we recognize that all sin, first and foremost, is sin against God, then we can apply what Jesus is saying here to sin of any nature, even if it's not personally against me. Pointing out someone's fault just between the two of you is hard, isn't it? It's risky. It goes against our natural instincts to, to avoid the confrontation and choose the easier and the more satisfying option of just talking to other people about what's happened. You know, if, um, sorry, I throw you under the bus, Richard, but if Richard's done something wrong to me, if there's, if there's a, something Richard's done against me, um, first and foremost, this is not an appropriate context to bring it up, you haven't done anything wrong, but, but the, the easiest thing for me to do is not to, not to go and talk to Richard one-to-one about it, it's to, it's to go off and talk to Ken about it and get Ken to, to take my side and have the, have the satisfaction of hearing Ken take, take my point of view. Um, going one-to-one to solve a conflict is difficult. But how many conflict experiences or how many conflict situations in your experience could have turned out very differently if this advice had been followed? Now, of course, it's not guaranteed to work. Not everyone will be humble enough to respond graciously to a one-on-one chat. And that's when Jesus tells us to gradually get more people involved. So just one or two others to begin with, and, and then the church. Now, in our context, that might be having a chat to a pastor, um, to someone on the leadership team, um, following the grievance policy process that we've got on our website. Um, And if that still doesn't help, Jesus says, treat them like a pagan or a tax collector. Now, that might sound a bit bit harsh, but then you read through the Gospels and, and you read that Jesus treated pagans and tax collectors pretty well treated them with, with a lot of love and respect, but, but he still told them to repent. And that's the model for us as well. We can treat people with grace and with dignity and with love, but still leave them in no doubt that they need to repent. So not affirming their sin in any way, not, not giving them any reason to think that you approve of the direction that they're taking, where they stand, but also not being proud or self-righteous, as if we weren't sinners as well. 
So Jesus has given us these, these instructions for, for dealing with sin, and it, he then zooms out, and he, and he shows us the heavenly perspective of all of this. Verse 18, whatever you bind or loose on earth will have been bound or loosed in heaven. Uh, so Jesus has given the church a process for dealing with sin, and when the church faithfully follows these steps with disciplining or restoring someone, there's heavenly authority behind it. Jesus says, uh, which helps us to make sense of verses 19 and 20, which, which so often are, are taken out of context. Jesus isn't promising unconditional answers to, to any prayer that we pray. Uh, he, the presence of Jesus doesn't depend on the number of people, because Jesus has sent his Holy Spirit. Jesus is present when, when one person is praying in his name. What Jesus is saying here is that God himself is at work in the church's process of dealing with sin. Jesus himself is present. Now, dealing with sin is a complex process. Nothing I'm saying here is trying to put it into a simple flowchart that will work perfectly every time. Um, there are always two sides to every story, often many more. People will take sides. There are power imbalances that, that make it um, difficult to approach things on an even playing field. The principle here, though, it's clear and it's helpful. Gently pointing out the sin and giving the person every chance to turn from it and be restored before it becomes more public. It's a balance, can you see, between the seriousness of the sin, but also a humble concern for the sinner having their best interests at heart as well. Now, so Jesus gives these instructions, and the follow-up question that Peter has is, well, how many times should I forgive a Christian who sins against me? And he must have felt that seven was a, a pretty generous suggestion, I would have thought, but Jesus tells him, no, 77, or 70 times seven, so infinity. You never stop forgiving. And he then tells a story that explains why. Uh, so we, we heard the story in the Bible reading. There's a, a servant who owes the king a huge amount of money, 10,000 talents. Now, a talent is about 20 years worth of pay. Uh, so to save you doing the maths in your head, we're, we're talking over $10 billion here. You, you wonder how he's racked up that debt. And he, he begs for mercy. He says, I'll pay it back. The master doesn't just give him time to pay it back. The master cancels the debt altogether. This is mercy beyond measure. But it's not the end of the story. It'd be a really nice story if this was the end, but it's not the end. The servant goes off and he finds another servant who owes him money and he has that servant thrown in jail. Now, it's a decent sum of money that the other servant owes him. It's about twenty-five dollars or $30,000 in our currency. But it's nothing compared with what that first servant owes. This servant, he, he has no appreciation whatsoever of the mercy that he's been shown. It hasn't changed his heart one bit. It's a brilliant story because, because it sucks you right in. You, you can't believe the heartlessness of that first servant. You, you can't believe how little he's been changed. But then when you understand the story, you realize 
I am that servant. If I'm happy for God to forgive me, but I'm unwilling to, to forgive someone else, then I am that servant. See, on our own, our position is just as hopeless as that servant's was. Because of our sin, because of the offense that we've caused God, um, we owed God a massive, massive debt that we could never, ever repay. And God's forgiveness is even more costly than this king's forgiveness. Sending his own son to die in my place so I could come into a right relationship with him. My sin forgiven. None of my debt held against me. Instead of facing God's judgment, I'm accepted as his child. Our king paid the price to free us from a debt beyond our ability to repay. Nothing could humble us more than this gospel message. If anything's going to give us a childlike humility, it is sitting at the foot of the cross and knowing what that means for me. Can you see the point that Jesus is making here? Any debt that someone owes us is trivial in comparison to the debt that God has cleared. Now, I don't say that lightly because I'm sure that in this room there are huge amounts of sin and wrongdoing that many of us have had to endure. Um, but still, refusing to forgive someone, it shows that, that we haven't grasped the forgiveness that Jesus gives us. It's interesting, I find, hearing what, what secular writers say on the topic of forgiveness, obviously with, um, with no reference to, to God or to Jesus. They'll tell us that forgiveness is something that we do for ourselves as much as for other people. It's, it's so beneficial to our emotional well-being, it's, it's almost selfish to forgive others. My observation is that it simply doesn't work that way. People get more satisfaction holding on to resentment, resentment than letting it go. Vindication, victory, vengeance, those three Vs, they're, they're very powerful motivators. And yet the gospel of restoration and love is an even more powerful motivator. We're merciful because Jesus showed us mercy. Now, it's important to be clear on what we do mean and what we don't mean by forgiveness. And I think that the language of debt in Jesus' story is helpful for us for understanding what it means to forgive. See, when someone sins against you or, or when someone wrongs you, there's, there's a cost, isn't there? You lose something. Uh, the cost might be to your, your reputation, uh, your joy, your, your sense of security. And instinctively, we want the person or the people who have wronged us to, to pay that debt. We want vengeance, even if we wouldn't use that word. That's what we want. We want them to suffer like we have. Uh, to, to forgive someone, it means we're forfeiting our right to seek that repayment. It means absorbing that cost myself. And that's painful. It's especially painful when there's been no repentance, no apology, no acknowledgement of sin from that person or, or from others. But even then, we're still called to forgive. Now, you might think, why should I be expected to forgive someone who hasn't asked for forgiveness? Well, if forgiveness means bearing the cost ourselves, 
without seeking repayment, well, it doesn't matter on one level if that person has repented. Forgiveness isn't conditional on the repentance of the other person so much as, so much as it being about my heart. Keep in mind, too, it's, it's possible to, to forgive someone, but to, to make them repay their debt in, in subtle ways, you know, like, like reminding them from time to time about what they did or using it against them down the track, storing it up with the, with the intent to hurt them later. That's not the true forgiveness from the heart that Jesus is after because, because we're, we're forgiving them in word, but we're still trying to, to gradually make them repay that debt. Forgiveness isn't necessarily simple or quick. If someone has wronged you in a, in a severe way, then it may take years and years for your heart to reach that point of forgiveness, that, that point where you've cancelled that debt in your heart. As I said before, I don't know what everyone here has been through, so I don't want to cheapen or trivialise what anyone is having to, to process. Um, and I do want to say that being unwilling to forgive someone is, is different to being unable to forgive them just yet. There is, there is a difference there. I think it's important to point out that forgiving someone doesn't mean exposing yourself to abuse and to harm. Uh, if you're in a situation like that, you need, to, you need to get out. You need to get yourself out of danger. And if you know someone who is in that situation, you need to help them to get out. And I realise it's, it's not always as easy as that. Again, I don't want to, to trivialise those, those circumstances. I just want to make the point that, that forgiveness in that context, it means that, that I'm giving up my right to repay that person for the abuse. I'm not going to return them the harm that they've done me, even if the opportunity comes up. But it doesn't mean exposing yourself to more abuse. It's entirely right in that situation to do all that you can to prevent the abuse from continuing, both for your sake and for others, and indeed to, to seek justice through the appropriate channels as well. Forgiving someone who has sinned against us doesn't necessarily mean that all the consequences of that sin are eliminated, or that everything is immediately restored back to how it was. Trust needs to be rebuilt. Further harm needs to be avoided. And it never means trivialising the sin that's occurred either, because it's not okay that they sinned against you. It's not okay. But you're choosing to forfeit your rights of repayment out of grace. It doesn't mean the sin is okay though. Forgiveness is painful because we're incurring a cost. And for that reason, it's a powerful response to the gospel message that lies right at the heart of Christianity. That our king bore the cost so that we could be forgiven. Knowing this will humble us. It will blind me to anything that might make me think that I'm greater than anyone else in the kingdom of heaven. And it will help us to see sin in the church, not through a, a proud and sinful desire to get my own way, but through a humble desire to honour God, to respond to his mercy, love our brother and sister, 
and to seek their restoration, no matter the cost. Now, I realize that a topic like this, it's, it's impossible to preach this in a timely manner in a way that is going to be specific to, to everyone's exact circumstances. So if there are things coming out of this morning's passage that, that you need to process or, or to chat through that you, that you don't think have been covered, um, please have a, have a chat to me. I'm sure Chris or, or Catherine would love to, love to chat with you as well if that's helpful, but um, please don't let, feel you have to leave here dissatisfied and, and feeling like you, you haven't been able to process what's going on. I'm gonna lead us in prayer. Father, thank you that the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is not the person who performs the most works for you, the, the person who is the most impressive in worldly standards, uh, but, but thank you that Jesus has completely changed what greatness looks like. And we ask that we would look to him to show us what it means to be great and that you would humble us at the foot of the cross. And we, we pray that you would help us to, to see sin in the church, not through our own selfish lenses, but, but through the lens of the gospel, that you would give us a, a strong desire to do all that we can to avoid leading people into sin, that you would help us to respond wisely and humbly to sin, particularly when it happens against us, and that you would give us your grace and your humility to, to forgive where it's needed and to have wisdom in how we go about seeking restoration. Please show us where we need to repent to others. Please show us where we need to repent to you and please show us where we need to forgive others. And we pray this for your glory and in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.